Good morning and welcome to Awaken Church. For those of you who are here for the first time, my name is Frank. I am one of the pastors here at Awaken and I'm excited to be here today. So last Sunday uh, was one of those everything went wrong before arriving at church Sundays. And uh, this week, completely different story. Everything went right. I am so happy. Birds were singing and chirping when I woke up this morning. I didn't have to take any zip fizz like I did last week. So I'm sure that you all are encouraged that your pastor is not using any controlled substances today. Last night, our church also celebrated our 10-year anniversary. That was an amazing time. And for all of you who were able to be there and to be a part of it, thank you for making that night special. Thank you for all the hard workers who came early to help set up. Thank you, Harlan George and Morgan. Thanks for all the saints that helped with the worship, the meal, the technology, the games, the stories. And, and of course, thanks to all of you who stayed late to help clean up. As a church, we are in the second week of a series that we've entitled Seeing 4D. And our intent during the course of this series is to confront some of the most difficult issues facing the church today. Divorce, doubt, depression, and death. And as we shared last week, the reason why these difficult topics are difficult topics is because they're all personal. Anyone can talk about these issues in theory, but for those of us who have been personally affected by them, we know that those who claim to have the right answers on these simply come across as arrogant. Truth without some degree of care doesn't reflect a Christian response. Truth and love need to go hand in hand with all of these difficult issues. That's how Christian ministry works. And that is the tightrope that this series is designed to walk. So last week we confronted the challenging topic of divorce. And we broke it down into two parts, looking at what God says about divorce, and then how are we to care for those wrestling with the fallout of divorce. Truth and love needing to come together in order to minister to that issue well. And this week, we're engaging on the topic of doubt. And as we did last week, uh, we're going to follow the same pattern. By breaking this sermon down into two parts, what does God say about the issue of doubt? And then how do we care for the people we love who are wrestling with doubt? So here's where I want to begin. I want to start by saying that everyone goes through periods of doubt. Doubt, by definition, a simple definition, is a feeling of uncertainty and a lack of conviction. And by that definition, every single one of us have wrestled with doubt at some point. But biblically, when doubt is used, almost always it has a negative connotation associated with it. Because the type of doubt that God is concerned about is not the type of doubt about whether or not we should wear jeans or yoga pants. Or, if you're a woman, I'm just kidding. Anyways, that is not the type of uncertainty that God tends to be concerned about. Praise the Lord. 
Instead, when God talks about the issue of doubt, it's typically the type of doubt that is directed towards him. The type of doubt that says, I'm not sure I believe God is real anymore. Or I'm not sure I believe God is good. Or I'm not sure that God is who he says he is. And that is the type of doubt we're going to focus on today. With that said, I'll reiterate that most of us, most Christians, will wrestle with this at some point in their Christian lives. In fact, it'll probably happen many times. I know it has for me. The problem with that is that doubt can become this self-defeating cycle, this self-fulfilling cycle. Because we, and the reason for that is we don't typically stop with the idea of, well, maybe God isn't real or maybe God isn't good. No, we continue on. And in our minds, we start thinking of all the reasons why that doubt makes sense. I mean, why should I believe God is real when I can't see him, when I can't touch him, when he doesn't answer my prayers? If God is so real and powerful, then why doesn't he just speak to me? Or why doesn't he just show himself to me one time? Is that really too much to ask? And that's the path that doubt starts to take us on this downward spiral until our doubt becomes more than an idea, more than a what if, but becomes something that we start to believe. And if that sounds familiar to anyone here, that spiral, then let me encourage you with a story that I'm thrilled God wrote into the Bible. It's a story found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. So in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1, when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone So to give you a bit of background on this story, most of us are familiar with who John the Baptist is. John was the cousin of Jesus who was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth and had the role of prophet who was responsible for proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. And so he was traveling throughout Israel, calling the people of Israel to repent and for those who did repent to be baptized. And so at some point, even Jesus himself comes to be baptized by John, and John chooses to do so. And after Jesus rises from the water, God speaks, has a dove come down from heaven and speaks and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That baptism launched the ministry of Jesus, and John was a witness to all these things. But in this passage, in Matthew 11, at this moment in time. John is not at a baptism. He is in prison. And he's in prison for confronting Herod Antipas about his wrongful divorce and marriage to his brother's wife, Herodias. John has confronted them, and both Herod and Herodias have John thrown into the prison. And soon, you're going to see how John is going to be killed and beheaded, but that hasn't happened yet. Right now, John is suffering in prison, 
anticipating his death, and doubt has creeped into his thoughts. So much so that he has asked some of his closest friends, his disciples, to go and ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? Now remember, John was there when God spoke and said, this is my son about Jesus. John's job his entire life was about proclaiming the coming of Jesus. If there's anyone on the face of the planet, or if there's anyone from the entirety of history that should have been certain that Jesus was the Messiah, it was John. You had one job, John, right? And yet, even John the Baptist doubted. And again, I love that God shares the story in the Bible because if it was okay for John to wrestle with doubt, then we're all good. So now I want you to see Jesus' response, starting in verse 4. Jesus told them, go back to John and tell them what you've heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. So here Jesus is saying, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and what you have seen. This is the answer Jesus gave John's disciples to give John. The answer to your doubts is to witness what I am doing. And this is a brilliant answer. Jesus didn't simply tell him, yes. Right? Because, and the reason why Jesus gives him this answer is because he is acknowledging that when you are in a place of doubt, oftentimes your biggest problem is not that you're missing the right Answer, Or another way of saying this is the antidote to your doubt is not always simply being told the right answer. You know, I shared earlier that all of us go through periods of doubt from time to time. And with that, it's important to realize that doubt by itself is not necessarily sinful or wrong. In fact, doubt can oftentimes act as a springboard to growth. And that's because doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief, the deliberate refusal to believe in God. Unbelief is the opposite of faith, not doubt. And so when Jesus closes his response to John, he closes with these interesting words. God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. And when he says those words, it's like Jesus is saying or acknowledging, look, I know it can be difficult to believe in me at times. And I want you to know, John, that though you may doubt me, I don't doubt you. Am I really the Messiah? Who else could possibly do what I do? Of course I am. In fact, you already know I am. You just needed to hear me say it. You just needed me to show you. Jesus knew the antidote to John's doubt was not a, yeah, that's me, Messiah. 
Instead, it was to remind John that he has not been forgotten, and the work he has given his life for is not only continuing, but being fulfilled. And that's why Jesus answers the way he does. The blind, they now see. The lame, yeah, they're now walking. Lepers are being cured. The deaf can now hear again. Even the dead are being raised to life. The gospel is being preached to the poor and to the needy. That's my answer to your question, John. This is how I will respond to your doubt. Of course I'm the Messiah. I'm doing the work God has called me to do. I'm doing the work you said I was going to do. I am the only one who can. Oh, and John, one more thing. God blesses those who don't fall away because of me. That's such interesting wording, isn't it? God blesses those who don't fall away because of me. Or another way of saying this, God will bless you if you don't lose faith when I fall short of your expectation. When I don't act the way you expect me to or hope I will. That was how Jesus responded to doubt. And not only then, but even still today. You know, there are a number of different examples about doubt in the scriptures that we could share. Uh, stories of Gideon and David and, and even Thomas. But I want to transition now to tackling the question of how then do we care for people we love who are struggling with and the way I want to do this, and there's a number of different rabbit trails we could have taken, a number of different paths that we could have taken to resolve this or, or look at this, but the, the path I've chosen, the way we decided or I decided to tackle it this morning is to take a look at three groups of people who wrestle with doubt. And for those of you who are curious, this is loosely based off of 1 Thessalonians 5.14, which I love because they're such an adaptable set of verses. So three groups of people who wrestle with doubt and three different responses to them. And the first group is the group that says, I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to believe. Recently, there's a pastor whom I greatly respect who was accused of being inappropriate with another woman. Nothing physical but certainly crossed some boundaries of what would be appropriate between a pastor and another woman who is not your wife and not your family. Now, to be fair, it happened a very long time ago, over 20 years ago, but despite that, she was not only adamant about it, but shared details about what she claimed happened. And the reason she shared that she has finally chosen to bring it up after all this time was because of the hashtag MeToo movement. And for his part, he denied doing anything wrong, but otherwise stayed mostly silent. His family has been a bit more outspoken and has fiercely defended him. And for me, I'm hearing about this story third hand, and I really have no idea what to believe. No idea who to believe. I feel like that the pastor that I knew and everything I thought I knew about him has just been kind of thrown up in the air and trying to figure out what I am and how I am to think about him now. Have you ever been in a situation like that with God too? Where 
you've been comfortable with God, you had an idea and an understanding of what God is like, and then something happens, and we move from that place of being confident in God, comfortable with God, to all of a sudden wondering whether we ever knew God at all. I thought I knew God. I thought I knew what I believed. But now something has happened that I can't explain and I can't understand, and it's causing me to question what I believe. Maybe it's something like Hurricane Florence, right? How can God be good when he allows a storm like this to destroy homes and to destroy lives, to allow a young woman and her baby to die? Or maybe it's an issue of theology. If God really has predestined everything like the Bible says, then what's the point of evangelism and ministry? If God has already decided it all, then it really seems unfair for him to condemn people to hell, right? There's so many other examples I could share, but you get the point. People in this group doubt because something happens that they can't explain or they can't understand, and then doubt creeps in. And left alone, that doubt could eventually become disbelief and a loss of faith. So how are we, as Christians, who see people that we love, respect, like, have a relationship with, struggling through this, how do we come alongside and when we see someone who is in that situation of saying, I don't know what to believe, our responsibility is to help them, to teach them, to disciple them. We come alongside gently and help them work through their doubts and invite them to be unafraid to seek God for an answer. But more than that, more than helping them discover how to go after God, to find, quote-unquote, the right answer, we also need to teach them something else. We need to teach them how to have the right attitude as well. And the right attitude to have as we go about seeking God for an answer is to give God the benefit of the doubt, to believe the best of God. Do you realize that every relationship that works, works because we choose to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. We consistently choose to believe the best of them. No relationship can work if we consistently choose to believe the worst of another person. That, event, that relationship will obviously die quickly. Well, it's the same way with God. Because our relationship with God is a relationship it only works so long as we believe the best while we seek understanding. As, long as, as soon as we allow ourselves to start thinking and believing the worst, then our relationship with God will soon fray and start falling apart. And so if you're coming alongside someone who is struggling with not knowing what to believe about God, then gently and lovingly help them believe the best and then discover an answer that will turn that doubt into faith. And oh, by the way, you won't be having to do that alone. God will help you in this as well. So that's the first group. I don't know what to believe. The second group is I feel like I can't believe. I feel like I can't believe. 
This is a different type of doubt than the last one. For those who don't know what to believe, then you can help them find an answer and you can tell they're in that place of I don't know what to believe because once they find an answer, they tend to then have peace with God. Everything gets settled and their relationship is oftentimes restored. But that is not the case with this group. People who fall into the camp of I feel like I can't believe have something that keeps them from being reconciled with God that goes beyond the right answer. I want to believe God loves me, but I can't. I just can't. I want to believe that God is good, but after what I've seen, I simply can't accept it. I want to have a relationship with God, but I just can't right now. People who fall into this camp of doubters are not looking for the right answers. They may say they are. They may even think they are. But when you take the time to gently and lovingly help them understand God, what you find is despite all of the questions and all of the answers, there's this underlying resistance that just won't go away no matter what answer you give them. And that's how you're going to know when you have someone who is at this level of doubt. It's someone you've come alongside, and as you're tackling the question or questions they have, and you come to some resolution, and they're like, no, there's still something else. And if you spent plenty of time working through that with them and still encounter resistance, then maybe it's time to accept that they're in this group, and it's time to take the next step. And the next step is look for the issue that is keeping them stuck. Look for what is keeping them stuck. And I know that sounds so general. It sounds a bit vague. But I'm going to help you. Typically, not always, but typically, the thing that's got them stuck is one of these four things. There is either a fear a wrong expectation, an unrepentant sin, or something they're protecting. A fear, a wrong expectation, an unrepentant sin, or something they're protecting. A fear would say something like this, I like to believe what you're saying, but I can't. Because if I do, I'm afraid of what's going to happen, or I'm afraid to believe. That was John the Baptist's problem, by the way. John's doubt in prison. If you understand, you read the passage, you, you, you can probably see that John's real problem wasn't that he really doubted Jesus was the Messiah, but he was in prison. He knew he was going to die. And he was afraid of dying and afraid that everything, maybe more than afraid of dying, more afraid that everything he had been working for, everything his life was about might be in vain. And he just needed the reassurance of knowing that, yes, my life has been worthwhile. You are the Messiah. And then I can go and I can face death happily. Maybe happily is the right word, but expectation. Expectation says, I'd like to believe, but I can't. Because that would mean God would want me to, dot, 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 or force me to, or dot, dot, dot. Sin says, I'd like to believe, but I can't. Because I'm not yet ready to let go of my sin. And finally, protecting someone looks like I want to believe, but I can't. Because blank won't let me, and I'm all they have. Fear, a wrong expectation, 
an unrepentant sin or there's something that will protect you. It's important for you to realize that when someone is in this level or stage of unbelief, because if you apply the wrong solution, you're just going to get frustrated. If someone is in this place of unbelief, if you continue to just try and teach them and give them right answers, then eventually you're going to be frustrated, and so will they. And by the other token, if, if your, your idea when someone you continue to encounter there's resistance, and you all of a sudden jump to the fact that, you know what, maybe they're just unrepentant and unbelieving, and you start reproving them, then all you're going to do is simply turn them away. This type of doubt doesn't necessarily reflect willful disobedience, okay? That's too easy a solution. Instead, be patient, be discerning, and ask God, let God help you find a way to work them through where they are stuck. So that's the first two. I don't know what to believe. Or, and then that's, that's group one. And the second, I feel like I can't believe. And that brings us to the third group, which is the I won't believe group. Or I choose not to believe. You know, I have, a, I have one brother. He's a younger brother of mine. His name is Perry. And Perry has a complicated relationship with God. He says he doesn't believe in God, but he also goes through these phases where he goes to church or even a period of like a year and a half when he played for a worship band. And I was asking him, I'm like, why are you on a worship band if you don't believe in God and don't want to go to church? And he's like, well, I just want to continue to play the guitar, but yet I still go to church. So it's a complicated relationship that he has. And so one night, a number of years ago, my brother and I spent hours, I mean like six to seven hours late into the night talking about God, and I was patiently working through all the different questions and challenges Perry had about God, and we were having a nice debate that occasionally got heated. I don't know what it is about me, but I just have this tendency of being able to debate things in such a way that just gets people frustrated at me, and so that was happening with my brother as well. And I remember how our six to seven hour conversation ended because he finally got to this point where he was so exasperated with me that he finally said, Frank, if what you say is true, if everything that you've been telling me is true, then it would only make sense for everyone to be a Christian, but they're not. Why? And I got so frustrated. I wanted to yell at him and say, because they're sinners like you, you know, and but I can't say that. I couldn't say that to him. And, or to just say to him that because they just don't want to. The reason why people don't believe in God is not because they don't have the right answers or God is not reasonable. Sometimes they just don't want to. And that ended our conversation. It ended our argument because both of us knew there was nothing else to be said. Perry didn't want to. Now, I don't know if he knew that from the beginning of our conversation or that's just where we ended up. But at that moment, we both realized that he doesn't want to believe. And so there's no point in continuing our conversation. There is a point when doubt becomes disbelief. And when you have someone in your life who's claimed to be a Christian, who was a Christian, is a Christian, but is now denying God in that way, the scriptures teach us that what needs to happen first is that they get 
reproved. And what does reproved mean? Reproved means to scold someone firmly in love in order to correct them. To scold someone firmly in love in order to correct them. And so our first response to someone who's denying God, who who was a Christian, said they were going to, is denying God now. The first step we take is to reprove them in hopes of winning them back to God, but not to do so in a way that breaks the relationship. So if they've gotten to a point where your reproof and desire to correct them doesn't turn them back, then choose not to make this a battleground. Focus on loving them and winning them over with your love and with your care. And listen to God. Listen and be prepared for when God might break their willfulness. Because that's what God's going to do. At some point, if they belong to him, but they've gotten to this place where doubt has become disbelief, at some point, God is going to try and break their hearts, to break through. And more specifically, when we're looking for those opportunities, I want you to look in two key areas specifically. In times of difficulty and in times of transition in their lives. These are going to be the times when they are most likely to be most open to God. In times of difficulty, in times of transition. In times of difficulty or when they're going through trials, when they're facing a struggle, People in that time just tend to be a bit more open to God. Or when they're going through a period of transition, I'm in a new relationship, I've moved to a new place, I've started a new job. In those times of vulnerability, when things are a bit unsure, oftentimes people will look for the stability and dependability that God provides. And if you've invested well in the relationship, then they might just be open to having you share with them in their times of need. So with the if they're in this group and you've reproved them and tried to correct them in love and they are resistant, then give it up. Don't make that a battleground and instead focus on maintaining and sustaining the relationship, right? So that when God creates an opportunity, perhaps you'll have be able to seize that opportunity and share with them. Okay, so I need to start wrapping up. But I want to close with one final thought. Actually, it's one final verse. It's found in the book of John, chapter 6. And this is what is shared. They replied, they being the disciples, we want to perform God's works too. What should we So here are the disciples, and they are wanting to do the things that Jesus has done and is doing. And they say, hey, we want to be a part of it. What do we need to do? And Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. This is the only work God wants from you. Believe. You know, sometimes we can think that believing in God is supposed to come easily or naturally, but that's just not true. Jesus tells us here that if you want to do what God has called you to do, then the most important work, the only real work that you have, is to 
believe. In other words, belief in God doesn't always come naturally, doesn't always come easily. It requires hard work, especially in times of doubt, especially in times of difficulty and trial, especially in times when Satan is attacking you and attacking the people you love. In those times, belief is going to be hard and you must work at it. In fact, oftentimes in those times, the most important thing for you to do is to fight and to believe in God and to believe the best of him. And yet, if you do so, what you will find oftentimes on the other side of doubt is a deeper, more meaningful faith. Frederick Buchner once shared this idea. He shared that deep doubt is often the prelude to an even deeper faith. Deep doubt is often the prelude to an even deeper faith. I love seeing that. I've found that personally to be true for my life. That oftentimes my moments of doubt and even deep doubt, wrestling through them, has been the process God has used to increase and strengthen my faith, my confidence in him. And that is the opportunity that doubt gives us. So with that said, I'm going to wrap up. And uh, how about we take a moment and close our time?